the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is The Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Happy Friday, friends, and welcome to The Jenna Ellis Show. This is a special episode because of the arguments that took place in the Supreme Court actually moments ago uh, this morning. And I wanted to have a special episode to break this down because, of course, a lot of you have uh, questions about Uh, what happened and what the projection is and what's likely to happen next. So first, uh, the Biden administration has caused a financial crisis and they have no clue how to fix it. Oil prices have skyrocketed. And when oil prices go up, not only do your expenses go up, but the costs of transportation and shipping spikes, leading the prices of goods to rise. We're already seeing record inflation, and that's the last thing we need. Our economy is in trouble and you need to take steps to protect yourself. So if all of your money is tied up in stocks, bonds and traditional markets, you may be vulnerable. Gold is one of the best ways to protect your retirement. No matter what happens, you own your own gold. It's real, it's physical, and it's always been valuable since the dawn of time. Legacy Precious Metals is the company that I trust for investing in gold, and they can ship gold and precious metals safely and securely directly to your house. They will give you a one-on-one personal uh, consultation and uh, help you figure out what is the best for you and your financial situation looking at your retirement. So call Legacy Precious Metals today at 866-528-1903 or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com. All right. So today, the Supreme Court oral argument. Um, So I want to be clear in the beginning about two things. If you listened to the show yesterday, I gave you a preview and went through uh, what, in in my opinion, were the best arguments and used the examples just from the ACLJ uh, briefing on this because there have been um, a ton of different uh, organizations that have applied for this same thing, as well as states that have said this is a federal overreach. Um, So I want to go through uh, just a couple of the main arguments that came out today. But if you missed yesterday's show, definitely go back and listen to that uh, from yesterday, January 6th, because uh, that was a lot of important information and and dialogue on uh, more substantive questions of of, of exactly what was addressed. So today in oral argument, um, the two things that I want to clarify first off is that the court is only considering a stay on the enforcement of the OSHA mandate. So they're not addressing the entire merit of a vaccine mandate itself, uh, but looking just at the stay on enforcement. And second, uh, while this was oral argument today, everything has been thoroughly briefed. Uh, Justice Breyer even said from the bench that his law clerks have been working on this and researching around the clock. So oral argument generally doesn't have um, a a huge effect on the outcome. It's just always interesting to hear what the justices 
uh, lines of questioning are to the advocates and what they're thinking and some insight into potentially where they are headed with their decision. So um, so oral argument today uh, was was very interesting. And to me, it came down to three main questions. Uh, first was who has the authority to decide on a mandate like this? Uh, where does the power truly lie? Um, is OSHA exceeding its authority? Second, uh, when does the emergency end? Uh, Amy Coney Barrett asked that question, and it was a great one. And third, what is the actual harm that would be incurred if the mandate went into effect uh, before everything was litigated on the merits? So as to the first question, who decides? Well, that I think is going to be the key decision factor if the Supreme Court ends up granting a stay. The justices were very focused on the overbroad authority that OSHA uh, pretends to have under the statutory regulatory structure. And uh, obviously, the federal government has never tried to impose this type of a vaccine mandate. And it is very overbroad because OSHA generally only deals with occupational safety regulations, things that happen while you are on the job that are specific to a given work location. And the um, emergency temporary stay is meant to address things that are genuine emergencies and to allow specific workers that are in a very specific work location or a very specific industry type across the country guidelines and guidance uh, for how to ameliorate some of those uh, some of those challenges that they face and and hazards in the workplace. Uh, but to have this kind of broad assertion of power, uh, one of the plaintiff's attorneys was saying this is something where we encounter a risk of contracting COVID in our daily life from the time that we wake up until the time we go to bed. Uh, there, there is always a risk in our daily lives of contracting COVID, and that is not necessarily any higher. And in some instances, it's significantly lower in a given workplace than it is in the course of our regular lives, like going to the supermarket or just being out in public or going to a concert or doing any number of things that we might choose to do in our in the regular course of ordinary life. So how this justifies a mandate, um, there was also conversation and dialogue and discussion about uh, how this particular mandate um, w would be the best implemented standard to try to mitigate this situation and if OSHA contemplated any other less restrictive means. Um, so interestingly, Justice Sotomayor, um, who I think, I, I personally think is just a, a complete jerk from the bench. Um, she's clearly not savvy on legal issues or just chooses to ignore them completely. And she was a total embarrassment today when she asserted completely falsely not only a lot of statistics about uh, COVID that are just factually false, uh, like saying that over 100,000 uh, kids are currently hospitalized with COVID and on ventilators and, you know, some of these other statistics that are, are just inaccurate. But the biggest thing was when she said that uh, the federal government has broad police power to enforce this kind of mandate. That is fundamentally against uh, our Constitution and the separation of powers, not just 
horizontally within the three branches of government. We can talk about the separation and, and delegation from Congress to OSHA as an administrative agency. But we also need to talk about the vertical separation of powers. Our federalism requirement in our established government system is all about a very, very, very small federal government in terms of its limited, specifically enumerated powers. The federal government doesn't just have broad authority to implement whatever they think is best for the country. That's why we have states, and that's why states have broad police power. It's not unlimited. And the question that Justice Gorsuch posed and and continued um, with both sides' arguments was to say, who decides? And why does the federal government presume that it has this authority just because there is a statute from Congress giving OSHA some authority over uh, standards in the workplace. This clearly, um, in it seemed in his view, belongs to the states. But for Sotomayor to actually assert that the federal government has broad police power is completely ridiculous. And it's actually really, really scary that we have one so incredibly far leftist activist judge who who basically is saying the federal government can do whatever it wants. And that's precisely the extreme risk of a precedent of this kind of mandate if it goes through and OSHA is allowed to continue, because what else can't they compel any worker in the American workforce then to do or to comply with under the auspices of health and safety? What about climate change? What about risk? What about saying, okay, when you leave the workplace and you get into your car, now OSHA is going to start regulating that? Or uh, because, you know, you may, when you, as a worker in the American workforce, uh, just by existing in the world, we're now going to uh, regulate what you can eat and what you can't in your diet because that ultimately may affect uh, your performance in the workplace. Or, you know, all of these kind of what would seem to be extreme examples aren't off the table if OSHA is allowed to proceed in this way and if they actually somehow buy this ridiculous notion that is completely antithetical to our constitutional structure that was put forth by Sotomayor. And this shows why. Um, Justice Gorsuch is very famous for being um, completely against an overbroad, overreaching administrative state. And this case fundamentally displays why our administrative state has become so overbroad and unconstitutional in what the federal agencies are uh, pushing in terms of their uh, their mandates and, and their ability to direct the course of American life and businesses and industry and economy and education and all of these other things that the federal government really has no business even commenting on. So um, so this was an interesting philo- philosophical challenge for the court, and it was very illuminating that Sotomayor actually argued from the bench that the federal government has this sort of arbitrary and cap- capricious police power. That's absolutely fundamentally false. And uh, Gorsuch pus- pushed back on that. Um, Chief-, Chief Justice Roberts did as well. And I think, frankly, that the plaintiff's attorneys, um, particularly Keller, he was the first attorney um, that's a private lawyer that was uh, arguing against the mandate. Um, His opening was okay, but his responsiveness to questions was absolutely terrible. Um, So Flowers, who is the Solicitor General of Ohio, argued next. He had better responses, didn't make as many concessions, but, um, but Keller basically conceded people in the workplace are in grave danger 
uh, and did not couch that by saying, however, people may be, some people who are at risk um, of comorbidities and other things may be at risk of grave danger from COVID, but you still have the 99.97% survival rate. And that wasn't brought up, nor uh, did they push back on either of them, push back on this false notion as well from Sotomayor and Kagan and even Breyer, who were saying that somehow the unvaccinated pose a risk to the vaccinated in the workplace. We know that that's just not true. Um, there is some evidence to suggest that the vaccinated um, if they contract COVID, have a smaller chance of being hospitalized and that there are some benefits medically to receiving the vaccine. Um, you may or may not agree with that, but that's the, the data that is out there, that um, vaccines, the primary um, effectiveness of the vaccine is not to prevent the contraction or spread of COVID, but to minimize the symptoms and the ultimately the risk of uh, complications and death to the individual who received it. But an individual who may be at greater risk when uh, contracting COVID, if they're vaccinated, that has no bearing on whether or not they can transmit and spread the disease or whether or not that's actually a workplace hazard. So vaccines, to me, it was mind boggling that the lawyers didn't push back on that and say, this type of mandate, you're basically trying to compel individuals in the workplace to take something that may have an impact to themselves personally, if and when they contract COVID, but it doesn't actually prevent or slow the spread or or minimize any of the transmission. And so what really is the point here? That should then be an individual decision between patients and their doctors. I mean, just like a multivitamin. I mean, is the Supreme Court now going to say that, okay, now because it's an occupational safety hazard that because you may get sick during the course of daily life, which includes presence at any job location, that now we're going to mandate that you have to take a daily multivitamin. I mean, it just doesn't make sense at all because me taking a multivitamin does not affect the health and safety of another person, right? So th this is just the reason and the rationale for the mandate doesn't make sense. It's completely overbroad in terms of the police power. And that was not pushed back against enough uh, by the plaintiff's lawyers. And to say that OSHA needs to recognize that their only congressional authority, and this is from like a 1970 law. Um, this isn't something that was uh, just recently instituted specifically by Congress to combat COVID-19. This was um, something that, that Justice Roberts actually pointed out. Certainly the 1970 Congress didn't contemplate COVID when they were talking about occupational uh, work workplace health and safety standards. I mean, that's just something, and he even said, you know, we were closer when Congress passed the law in 1970, probably to uh, the, the 1918 pandemic than we are to COVID. And they, they didn't address vaccines at all. Congress was silent on that. And so the major questions doctrine also came in uh, to the discussion by saying, if this is a major question and Congress hasn't specifically authorized this particular agency to issue the mandate that it is 
uh, trying to implement, then shouldn't this be left up to Congress if it has the constitutional authority? Remember, Congress can't just legislate on anything that it wants to. It has very specific, limited subject matter in Article 1, Section 8. But even if then Congress can constitutionally legislate on that, that should be a congressional question where we the people get to uh, to have representation on this issue through our duly elected representatives in Congress, not through a bureaucracy and an unelected uh, federal agency that is part of um, really, you know, the, the, the unelected administrative state. So the major question is doctrine here, I think absolutely does apply. And several of the more conservative justices, um, I think, were weighing on the side of saying this should be a major question. But if not to Congress, then to the states. And that's where this question of who decides is really a big deal, because the broad police authority does not extend to the federal government constitutionally. Congress did not delegate this particular mandate authority to OSHA under this um, emergency temporary standard. And so it should be left to the state and local authorities um, if they even have the authority. And that's where we remember the, the Massachusetts versus Jacobson case or Jacobson versus Massachusetts case. Um, you know, that was very early on in the 1900s that dealt with a state level mandate uh, dealing uh, just specifically with that particular vaccine with polio. And the only uh, the only punitive sanction for noncompliance wasn't this overbroad, you have to have everyone in your workplace conform, otherwise, um, you know, you'll be out of compliance and you have to fire workers, all of this. It was individually, you personally were subjected to a very nominal financial penalty. If everybody in the United States who didn't want to get vaccinated had to pay a $100 fine, one-time thing, and now we're done, we can move on with all this, I think everybody would generally be okay with that. And that shouldn't even be a standard, in my opinion. Um, I think that that's outdated precedent. Um, I think that that's outdated uh, ways to look at this. And, and also it's an outdated um, precedent for a lot of the, the health reasons as well, particularly as applied to COVID. But even if the court applied that standard in the alternative, that would still be far preferable and, and far institutionally sound, say the states argue that on their level, and we can contemplate later whether the states have that broad police authority, um, not only in their executive, I don't think that a governor can impose a vaccine mandate either on the state level, it would have to go through the state legislature. That provides citizens the opportunity to comment, to go and testify, and to voice their objections, voice their um, opinions on it, voice their support for it. Um, so that's that's our constitutional system of of the people, by the people, and for the people, that we the people get a say in what our government does. We don't just have these bureaucrat agencies in Washington deciding for all of us in every work location, in every state, in every town that are vastly different in these approaches, in these communities, in existence, in, in everything, in almost every respect, very, very different. We don't have that kind of system where we just from on high from an unelected bureaucratic agency. So who decides is really important. And if we go just based on the oral argument, and I know that I've, I've said we can't, but if we do, um, it seems to me that if a stay is implemented by the Supreme Court, that will probably be 
uh, the rationale that they use is that constitutionally OSHA has far exceeded not only the statutory authority, but also the constitutionally overbroad, vague uh, general police power that does not exist within um, the federal government as a whole, even to Congress, um, that the Supreme Court has previously recognized, but also not an unelected bureaucratic federal agency. Um, the second question of when does the emergency end? That was really important, and um, Justice Barrett asked that question, which was the key question, and that has been the key question for the last probably year and a half, because we could say, okay, an emergency like this, because you know we're just getting the data, we're just looking at this. Initially, do you remember 15 days to slow the spread? Yeah, that was basically the extent of what should have been, should have qualified as an emergency. A couple of weeks to say, okay, we need to figure this out, and 15 days to slow the spread. We're asking everybody to stay home, but nobody was getting arrested for going to the grocery store for, there weren't curfews in place like what we're seeing in Canada. I mean, you know, this is just insanely absurd that two years later, we're still under the auspices of this being a health emergency. It's not. Not only are we seeing the survival rates, we're also seeing uh, people who are more at risk than others. That's a differential calculation that is unique to the individual uh, and what types of therapeutics work, uh, what types of um, the, the vaccines don't work in terms of uh, of uh, not having the individual actually contract COVID. Um, because initially, and even though the Democrats don't want to admit this now and they've politicized it, initially the vaccines were touted as saying, if you are fully vaccinated, you won't get COVID. And there's video evidence for that. And that's what everybody was saying. And Fauci was saying all over the TV networks. But now they're saying, oh, well, the vaccine is only required and we're still mandating this because that will decrease your likelihood of hospitalization and death. Well, that's not a vaccine. That's still basically a, a pre or, or a prophylactic. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pre-contracting medical intervention to say, okay, I'm going to lessen the symptoms if I happen to contract it. So under the, um, under the ETS, there is no emergency that justifies this two years later. And it did come up in discussion, and specifically with Barrett's question, uh, the, the attorney arguing for the federal government was asked, you know, this is two years into this, and you have given time for the workers um, and the employers to come into compliance with this. So how is this possibly an emergency two years later? And, you know, and her responses were like, well, you know, the vaccine, this and that, and we're, we're still developing this. And um, now it's, you know, it's at the appropriate time that we can implement this because of what we know. Well, that should go through Congress. If somebody is going to do something about it, that should go through Congress. It's not an emergency at this point. And the question about the harm, I would have loved to see, like I said yesterday on the podcast, um, I would have loved to see the plaintiff's lawyers today arguing much more forcefully and pushing back on this notion that the greatest harm is just going to be uh, the workplace not being as efficient or the economy not being as robust um, because the greatest harm here is that once you have a coerced vaccine injection, that cannot be undone. And the plaintiff's lawyers today did not push back on that hard enough when there was the talk of the balance of equities. And that to me is one of the strongest arguments for a stay. 
is that there is harm that will be incurred for people who are vaccine hesitant, vaccine resistant, just have a, a conscience objection, uh, a religious objection. There are religious exemptions uh, to this, but in terms of just general conscience, people who are going to then have this choice of evils, which is in their mind to take the vaccine or to lose their job, a moral choice of evils. And that's not okay. That is a harm that cannot be undone if this mandate goes into effect. Um, so those questions, I would have loved to see the plaintiff's attorneys actually respond a lot better. And I just have to say, between listening to this case and listening to the Dobbs case, why is it that, generally speaking, the conservative position has far less effective advocates than on the left? Because I thought both of the women that argued on uh, the Dobbs case pro-abortion and the woman who argued pro-government and OSHA mandate today were far more articulate and they were more responsive and better prepared than the lawyers in both uh, the Dobbs case and the case today for the plaintiffs. And that shouldn't happen. We need to have really good advocates, not only on, on both sides, um, but we need to have the best advocates that are arguing for the protection of the rights of the people and for the Constitution. And it was really disappointing to me as an advocate who has participated in oral argument at the appellate level. And I've, I've been in many trials on, um, you know, both civil and criminal and, um, you know, on both sides as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, and then civilly for, you know, plaintiff and defense. Um, and making these arguments, you have to have people who understand that what they're being asked and are willing to answer without major concessions. And so uh, Keller, who was the first plaintiff's attorney, private lawyer, uh, got absolutely slammed on Twitter by a lot of, um, you know, the law Twitter and people who were listening to these arguments for making too many concessions and saying, you know, yes, COVID poses a, a grave risk in the workplace. That's not a concession you want to make because that's one, it's, it's not true. Uh, as a broad assertion to say that this is a workplace-related risk. Um, and I thought that the Solicitor General for Ohio Flowers was much better, and he at least did come in and attempt to cure that concession by saying that um, this is a risk of contracting COVID that is uh, just a part of everyday life. It's not specific to the workplace. Uh, but we need to have advocates that are better prepared that are really, really good and phenomenal lawyers for cases that are this important. Because whether or not you agree with the vaccine um, as, as a personal health decision or you have taken it or you think everybody should, everyone should care about whether or not the Supreme Court allows OSHA to proceed with this unlawful and unconstitutional overreach of broad authority to tell millions of Americans that you have to be vaccinated when they have absolutely no constitutional or statutory authority. That should bother everyone, and we should all be able to rally around that. And I hope that at least five justices are willing to stand firm on that. Um, so in, in speaking with a few of my other colleagues, and, um, you know, it's always kind of fun during oral argument to, um, you know, to be having kind of text chats with various um, groups and individuals of lawyers and kind of seeing what they think and um, comparing and contrasting what we're all hearing during the argument. Um, I think the consensus here 
is that likely the court uh, will be willing to grant an administrative stay, which is not the full injunction that's being asked for, but an administrative stay for about 72 hours so that the court can fully consider uh, what it's going to do on the stay itself. So that's the posture now. Uh, we'll see. And come Monday, we may be talking about uh, their opinion and uh, good versus uh, evil in that sense. And I hope that the Constitution and the rule of law will prevail. And the bottom line here is um, the, the answers to the questions, to the three most prominent questions, uh, are, are this. Who has the authority and who, who decides? Well, that should be the people, not any government agency, federal, state, any one period. Who decides? The individual. Second, when does the emergency end? It should have ended over a year and a half ago. Absolutely, we're done. This is no longer a state of emergency. And third, uh, the balance of harms and what is the harm? The harm is the future precedent of an overbroad administrative state that can now do anything under the auspices of health and safety. That's the danger and the harm to the precedent. The immediate danger and harm is to the individual who will be coerced to take a vaccine that cannot be undone. So we'll have more analysis uh, come Monday. I'm glad that you uh, have joined me today for um, our special edition of the Friday podcast and pray for the Supreme Court, pray for each of the justices that their own uh, personal opinion on the vaccine uh, doesn't come into play. It shouldn't matter. Um, all of the justices uh, reports have said they're all vaccinated and boosted. Okay. Uh, but that shouldn't mean that they impose that same decision on the rest of us. And uh, that is, is, is so important that we at least get to a vote of five. Five on the court uh, is what decides cases. And I hope that we will see a stay, um, whether or not it's an administrative stay for 72 hours, that would at least be good in uh, the short term. But I hope long term, this will be overturned. We will get the injunction and uh, we will move forward in freedom and liberty and protecting and preserving the rights of Americans to live freely, make our own decisions, and have a government that is limited in its power and authority. So before I go, I want to give you a great offer from MyPillow. Using the promo code Jenna, go to MyPillow.com, click on the new radio listener special, and get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the six-piece towel set, which is two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths made in the USA, soft yet very absorbent. I have the sage green set. I love it. Regularly $109.99, now only $39.99, but you have to use the promo code Jenna, call 1-800-564-8475 or go to MyPillow.com, click on the new radio listener specials and enter the promo code Jenna. That's J-E-N-N-A. I'm Jenna Ellis and I will see you Monday. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.